This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. In the first nine months of 2018 alone, 3,286 people died of opioid-related overdoses across the country. And so Ontario is joining British Columbia in a class action lawsuit against opioid manufacturers and wholesalers as part of a new mental health and addictions bill. The national class action lawsuit was launched last year against more than 40 opioid manufacturers. And right now, I would like to bring in Robin Martin, Parliamentary Assistant to Health Minister Christine Elliott. Hello there. Hi there. So tell me about the lawsuit. What are you hoping it will result in? Well, we want to be involved in this lawsuit so that we can recover past and future health care costs that have been borne by Ontario taxpayers due to opioid-related disease, injury, or illness. It costs our, our public health care system quite a lot of money, and of course, uh, importantly, it has cost the people of Ontario enormously in, in terms of lives lost as well. So we want to make sure that we're part of the action that British Columbia has already started, and uh, our legislation that we're bringing forward has uh, two parts to it. One part is to improve the quality of our mental health and addiction services by establishing the Mental Health and Addiction Centre of Excellence within Ontario Health, and secondly, to support our participation in this lawsuit. Now, do you have any idea what the costs are? Uh, Have you put a number on the lawsuit uh, or even on an annual basis? You mean the damages that we would be yep. claiming? Yep. No, those numbers are not set. Uh, you know, it's it's evolving over time as we see what damages are being incurred and what expenses we have related to it. Uh, but the the numbers are not set. Right. But do you have any idea what it costs the healthcare system? Well, we we have. Uh, spent money setting up, for example, supervised consumption sites uh, historically, and now we call them consumption and treatment service sites. So we have the costs that uh, those sites have made us incur. There are public health costs related to this. There are costs for policing, in fact, as well. Um, you know, as, as the police have to deal with people on the streets who have overdosed. Um, so I don't have a number uh, as to what this all adds up to. It is happening and growing, unfortunately. Um, and uh, th- those costs will be toted up later. Okay, but it is uh, in the billions and billions, I'm assuming, uh, or yes, getting there. Uh, it could well be. I mean, I, I don't want to speculate on the number because it is something that is evolving. Um, and, you know, because there's a lawsuit, uh, I don't want to be held to a number I, I have speculated on. Now, in the United States, uh, they have settled with states for, for very large sums of money. There was one for $200 million just the other week. But just in terms of a timeline, you know, you're, you're saying that you're going to use the money from this, assuming that you, uh, you're successful, for addictions and mental health. But uh, I'm thinking that the timeline for this is probably very long. I mean, do you have any idea how long this would take? Are you hoping for quick settlement? Um, generally, these these 
actions do not uh, uh, resolve themselves quickly. Uh, it's a class action lawsuit. It was actually launched uh, last August, and uh, given the large number of defendants, many of which are international corporations, it even took a number of months for the BC government who launched the lawsuit to serve all of the defendants properly with the lawsuit. The first court date uh, before the case management judge assigned to the matter is scheduled for this June, um, and at that time we'll have a better sense of how the defendants are going to approach and respond to the claim, but we do expect them to fight it uh, you know, with all they have. Uh, so no, uh, what we have said is at the point of getting some award, we will just put that award back into frontline mental health and addiction services. Uh, but we're still investing as we go along in mental health and addiction services. We made a promise, I think you probably know, of $3.8 billion over 10 years to mental health and addictions. And we had an announcement just a few weeks ago where we um, announced $174 million of annualized investments uh, into a number of areas of priority for mental health and addictions in Ontario, including reducing wait times, beds in hospitals uh, for mental health, uh, supportive housing, uh, investing in Indigenous and priority populations, including francophones, and uh, opioids and addictions, of course, and building capacity in our children and youth mental health sector. And uh, you want to set up, uh, I, I believe you're using Cancer Care Ontario as a model to get to a point where there is a standard of care yes, for mental health? That's right. It's it's actually the other half of the, the legislation we're talking about that includes the, the province's participation in this class action lawsuit. So what we're trying to do there is do for mental health and addictions what Cancer Care Ontario did for cancer, which is really to have a provincial coordinating body overseeing our system for standardization and performance so that we can make sure that we have quality and delivery across the province and and have really a better and more consistent patient experience everywhere. There seems to be... Um, a lot of fragmentation in our mental health and addiction system. There's uneven quality. There's there's a lack of data, especially in the children and youth sector. And there are wait times, of course, and barriers to access. So we want to address those things. We have this big investment to make, but we want to use the money as wisely as possible. And so we need things like data, performance indicators, and a common infrastructure so that we can share evidence and set service expectations that will apply across the board. And that's what the Center of Excellence will provide us with. Uh, so we're really, we've, we're very excited about it. It was recommended in the select committee, uh, which was an all-party committee here in Ontario in 2010, which the Minister of Health, Christine Elliott, uh, was um, the vice chair of. And uh, she's very excited that uh, she's actually seeing this to fruition because it will be helpful to have this kind of provincial oversight. Okay. Robin Martin, Parliamentary Assistant to Ontario's Health Minister, Christine Elliott. Thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, people, we're going to take a break, but we want to hear from you about your experience with opioids and addiction. For a lot of people, they had something not so serious, a sprain, uh, some pain problem, and uh, it wasn't long before they were addicted to these drugs that were supposed to help them. I'm here with pharmacist Dean Miller, who has a lot of experience with this, and our listeners, our regular listeners will know Dean. And we will also be talking to another expert on mental health 
and recovery. And again, we want to hear your stories. The numbers to call before we go to break, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We've been talking about the government's uh, joining a lawsuit against the makers and the pharmaceuticals involved in opioids. It's a huge class action suit. Uh, Ontario is joining BC. And we talked about an earlier class action suit that was launched on behalf of victims. And we would like to hear from you about your experiences with this because this involves a lot of people and it's terrible. You get a prescription, something not necessarily that serious, and then you are facing this life-altering addiction. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-744-740. I am here with Dean Miller in studio, as I said, pharmacist with Whole Health Pharmacies, and Farduf Husseini, who is the National Director of Research and Public Policy for the Canadian Mental Health Association. Welcome to you both. Hi, Libby. Welcome. Hey, how are you? Fine. Okay, Dean, let's start with you. Sure. Tell me about what you <clears throat> have seen and what you continue to see in your practice as a pharmacist. Yeah, well, uh, Libby, this this is a growing problem and it's it's a it's a very sad problem as well and I think you had quoted the number of deaths that, you know, are happening across this country today, which is a far cry from where it was say 25 years ago. Um you know, over time, I, I, I think for a couple reasons, you know, overprescribing is definitely one thing. Opioids were never meant to be used for longer term pain anyways. I mean, they're always there. It's a shorter term solution to acute pain. I mean, that's really what it's there for. And, uh, you know, over time, we've seen overprescribing more and more med- medications, more and more medications that end up on the street, more and more medications that are sort of adultered to 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 be you know laced with something and and what ends up happening is 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 people die and uh that's that's what we're faced with today thousands of canadians dying every year um from opioid overdose just give me an example of what you would see in your practice somebody coming in with what kind of a prescription and you know what uh, and this is <laughs> this is no shot against dentists but dental pain is a is a good example right i mean dental pain you know, usually only lasts a couple days, you know, unless you've had a really serious problem, you know, getting a prescription for 100 oxycoset or something like that, that, you know, would last a person a month, you know, or, you know over, over time. I mean, you can easily take them for a couple days until the acute pain is gone and then move on to something else like an anti-inflammatory. And that's not done enough. That, that's not still still. You know, even with all the the press and media around this very topic, it's still, you know, it's still a, a very, very bad situation. Yeah, and I'd like to bring in Farduf. And I remember the last time we talked about this, I was talking to Mike Merriman from the Paramedics Association. Mm-hmm. And he was telling us that his wife had some not very big big deal, like it was a sprain or something. She went to a walk-in clinic and she walked out with a prescription for a hundred. Oxycontin. Uh, Farduf, is, is this what you see as the problem or a big part of it, the overprescription? 
Yeah, I think liberal, liberal prescribing of opiates by physicians is definitely a problem. Uh, but the thing for us and something that we've noticed is that when it comes to mental health services in this country, it's chronically underfunded. And why a lot of people are resorting to substances is to numb psychological pain. So let's not even focus on physical pain because that's a huge piece of it, but uh, there's greater people that you can speak to to talk about that. But there's also psychological suffering that individuals are dealing with. So if they're dealing with anxiety and depression and they have to be on long wait lists and can't see appropriate uh, healthcare professionals, they're resorting to substances to help numb that pain and to help mask that struggle that they're dealing with. And I think that's an important element of it, and that's something that we have to address because... With opioids, though? Yeah, some people people are using opioids to numb those pains. Yeah, so you know to you're numb saying, numb psychological pain. I've I've never heard of that. Yeah, that's one of the underlying issues of this crisis is the psychological suffering associated with social inequalities, right? So uh, lack of health care, lack of child care, you know, access to education, employment. So individuals who are struggling and don't have any outlet to see someone appropriate, a healthcare professional, they're resorting to using substances, and we know that can be quite detrimental uh, when they get addicted to it. Dean? Well, you know, that that's not something that we deal with in the pharmacy a lot, but, but Farduf is right. I mean, um, you know, the dependence of people on, you know, medications to kind of get them through each and every day. You know, I mean, a lot of the listeners we have, of course, are seniors and, you know, they, they end up, you know, struggling with sometimes their day to day in a long term care facility or a retirement home. And Fardoof is right. I mean, it, it, it just, you know, one kind of potentiates each other and, you know, mm-hmm. you, you mask it or you try and treat it in order to kind of feel better. Um, and it, and you run into problems. And that, that's a, that's a, a very big point with opioids is it makes you feel great. You know, oh, there's no pain. So I just take more or I keep taking it because it makes me feel great. You know, I was on opioids at one point, a lot of opioids for cancer pain. Mm -hmm. And uh, they did not make me feel great. They messed me up royally. (laughs) I couldn't wait to get off them. Well, you know what, uh, Mm -hmm. Libby, it's it's very, very very true because just the nature of how – and I'm not going to go into physiology here, but Mm -hmm. but the nature of how opioids work, um, you know what, if it – it can easily sort of put you over the deep end when it comes to the side effects because some of them are are god-awful. And, and, you know, can lead to an overdose quite easily. And, and, uh, that's extremely problematic. Okay. Let's take a call from Joan in North York. Hi, Joan. Hi. So I've just been eating. Anyways, I've had five joint replacements. Wow. And if I didn't have opiates post, um, you know, post replacement, um, I don't know what I would do because I don't know if you've ever had, joint replacements but boy they're painful when you you stay in the hospital one night come home the next day so i guess my question is are like if people are going to be sued for making opiates what about people that need them uh i am going to put that question uh to Fardoof, uh, Joan, I don't think anybody is is saying that they shouldn't be made or they shouldn't be mm-hmm. prescribed, uh, but they have to be used more judiciously, and I'm glad that they help you with your pain. Thanks very much for calling. Uh, Fardoof, what's your answer to Joan? 
Absolutely, yeah, I, I agree that there's a role for op uh, pharmaceutical opioids and they help individuals, but I think it's ensuring that we have good prescription, prescription guidelines, right? So when we are uh, prescribing opioids, that we're not prescribing it with high dosages or that we're not having liberal practices, that we have actual standardized and actual guidelines that we're following. And also, I think it's important to address that there's alternative forms of pain management in healthcare that probably are not being funded, right? So there's other ways of not just relying on opioids alone. There's other treatment options that we can do, like re-physio and rehab. You know, those pieces can also help with pain management, but they're not being funded. Um, I, think I don't know if funding is the only problem. I know that I just mm -hmm. talk to a, a lot of people because... Say, I have arthritis. I think the only thing that deals with it is exercise, but I talk to a lot of people who aren't interested in, in going down that route. So it's not just the matter, you know, you're right, it's not funded, but, um, you know, I think, I think th that there is another issue there. Dean, would you agree? Definitely agree. And I think one, one thing that, that I think that Joan, yeah. what she brought up was the fact that it works for her. She's got legitimate pain and that, that's working for her. What often happens is people kind of go past the point of legitimate pain and, and you know, I'm feeling good, so I want to feel even better, so I just take more and more, and mm -hmm. then you get into the problems, right? So, so. And uh, it's like the wraparound services is helping people taper off, so that's something that's not implemented right now. We're giving people prescriptions, but then we're not helping them taper off of it. So, as Dean mentioned, then they get attached to it, and then they're reliant on it. But if we have a strategy in place to help individuals eventually taper off and in a healthy way, that'll, that'll be very helpful. Well, I, I have to say that again, back then, uh, I was tapered off. I mean, it, was, it didn't require anything but a phone call. It's like <laughs> saying, okay, today take this, tomorrow take that. And uh, it, it was, you know, less than a... It was a little over a week, and yep. I was off. But uh, let's before we go to break, let's take a call from Cynthia. Cynthia, you got off opioids cold turkey. I did, um, because, you know, the anticipation of, oh, no, one less, oh, no, one less. Um, for me, it worked. Now, if you have heart conditions and things, I was sicker than a dog. I needed them at the time, and I thought I was thinking very clearly when I was on them, but now I'm thinking clearly, not realizing that I wasn't thinking, you know, what it did to, to the brain as well. And, and I was, it was masking problems in my body that I didn't even realize I had that bad of problems. So now I go forward and address those things. Okay. Thank you for sharing that, Cynthia. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for being there. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. We are anxious to hear your stories. Uh, Dean was just saying in the break, everybody has a story about opioids. But one thing I, I want to make sure that we touch on, and Farhad, uh, Fardoof, excuse me, um, if you could weigh in on this. So, let's say somebody does get addicted to opioids. What's the process for rehab for getting off it once that happens? There's multiple options. I think if we're looking at just treatment, then it's access to services. So uh, being able to access an abstinence-based service, uh, helping you reduce or reduction, harm reduction to service, 
but the problem is that there's long wait times for this within our country. So if you're looking to, if you have made that decision to get off a substance and you know that you might have a problem and you're like, I'm ready to get help, uh, you might be on a wait time list of two to 12 months. And we know someone who is dealing with a substance problem and they're using substances, two to 12 months could be the difference between life and death. So there's an issue there that we have to really address that gap for access because it's a huge problem in this country. And when it comes to mental health funding, we're amongst the lowest when G7 countries, we spend about 7.2% of our healthcare dollars towards mental health and addictions. So that's what's leading to the lack of services. So uh, there's, there's methadone treatment that can help other individuals. You know, there's buprenorphine. There's other treatment options that are there, but they're not widely accessible to everyone. So that's a big problem. I think that needs to be part of the dialogue is that there are individuals that are saying, okay, I'm ready to get help. But when they do reach their hands up, there's not another hand reaching back out to get them timely access to supports. Dean, from your practice, uh, what kind of percentage of, of patients that you deal with would have been tapered off in a timely manner? And how many would you see ended up addicted? Well, that's that. I, I don't know if I have any stats, but can I say lots? Okay. No, it, <laughs> because, anecdotally, of yeah, course. Yeah, uh, there is a ton of people that go on opioids and stay on opioids for extended periods of time. And Farduf brings up a very good point because, you know, the treatment services like methadone program or like a suboxone program, which are tapering type of solutions, also include other medications, anxiety medications, antidepressants. So all of these things are sort of used in combination to, to wean people off. And some people never wean off, um, which is the, the unfortunate part of this. And those are the ones that often stay on and get themselves in trouble, uh, you know, from uh, from overdoses and things and cause, cause deaths. So, One of the things uh, a lot of people find uh, is very helpful is uh, cannabis, except I've heard from a lot of people who say, for instance, uh, opioids are covered, the government will pay for it, if, if you're talking about a, a, someone over 65, but... Cannabis, no. So it's too expensive. I'll go with opioids. Fardoof? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, we're hearing a lot about that anecdotally too. In BC, there's this program called High Hopes where uh, it's built from the grassroots and an individual who's started to hand out cannabis to people that are uh, addicted to opioids. And what she's found, again, this is not well-researched, but she's found that it's helped individuals get off their opioids. And we know that no... One really has overdosed on cannabis, but uh, the overdoses on opioids is quite high. But there's an issue again to access, right? So uh, it's not covered. You know, you gotta you gotta have a card and all these issues that can help that can actually be detrimental for people access and getting access. But it is it is an option that needs to be researched better. You know, and I think Canada is in a unique position with being the second country to legalize it. That we we're we can be ahead of the game in this. You know, and we are actually the world leaders in cannabis research. But it's just started. Yeah, it just started exactly. And I think with the numbers that we know and how many people have we've lost to this opioid crisis, I think nothing can, should be off the table, right? We should be leveraging any opportunity we can to be saving lives. And if cannabis is the alternative, I, I'm not saying it is or not, but I think it's something that needs to be researched better. Okay, let's hear from Donnie in London. Hi, Donnie. 
Hi, how are you doing today? Fine, how are you? Yeah, not too bad. But I, I do have a concern that nobody's mentioning about the methadone that everybody's being put on to get off of the opiates. Uh, yeah, we just were talking about it, but what's your point about it? Oh, I didn't, I didn't hear that. I, I, maybe I was, I missed that. Are you saying no, it's good, bad, or indifferent? I'm on, I'm on, I'm on it because I, I was on opiates because I had, I did take an injury, but I found that it was helping me with my IBS pains. Now, the doctors have never prescribed anything for the IBS except for the methadone, at which I'm now on methadone. And it makes me sick every day. And you can't just come off this stuff. Okay, so people are being put on methadone, which is just as bad and makes people just as sick. I think it's insane. Well, because methadone is being a program. One bad drug for another bad drug. <laughs> well, Donnie, you're right. I mean, methadone itself is a narcotic, a very strong narcotic and uh, op- opioid-based. And... and you know, it does take a long time of tapering off to get somebody off of off of methadone. Can I honestly say it's it's one of the only things we really have uh, in order to kind of do that? And and there are thousands and thousands of Ontarians on uh, established methadone pro, uh, programs in in this province. So, Donnie, thanks very much for your call uh, and best of luck to you. Thank you very much. Uh, we are basically out of time, so I'm going to give each of our guests uh, 20 seconds to what would you like to leave us with, Fardu Fusaini? Yeah, I think for the opioid crisis, and I know we're spoke, focusing more on pharmaceutical opioids, but I think there's no real silver bullet in solving the crisis, but we need to really take a multi-pronged approach, and that's focusing on decriminalizing drugs where we're treating substance use and addiction as a health issue, not a justice issue, uh, investing more dollars in harm reduction, you know, investing in treatment, and addressing the social inequalities that have led to people dealing with psychological suffering and as a result needing to be dependent on substances. I think we really have to take a multi-pronged and multifaceted approach to this crisis, and we really have to get ahead of it or the numbers will only get worse, and we're seeing that year after year. So. Okay, and Dean Miller? I'm going to take a very practical approach to this. We haven't talked about naloxone. Um, naloxone is available in a nasal spray. It's available in an in inject- injectable. If you have opioids in large quantities in your medicine cabinets, you know, your neighbor has it, get down to the pharmacy. It's free. Uh, ask your pharmacist to, to give you one and keep it because uh, it may not be you. But it could be your neighbor, it could be a child, it could be a teenager, it could be anybody in your life that at some point you may be faced with. uh, And the pharmacists tell you how to use it. Uh, Don't worry about that. It's free. Do it. (laughs) Okay. A good note to end on. And thank you so much, Fardu Fusseini from the Canadian Mental Health Association and Dean Miller, pharmacist with Whole Health Pharmacies. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.